Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled to have Anita Morjani on today. She was born in Singapore of Indian parents, moved to Hong Kong at the age of two, and lived in Hong Kong most of her life. Because of her background and British education, she's multilingual and grew up speaking English, Cantonese, and an Indian dialect simultaneously. She later learned French at school. Anita's been working in the corporate world for many years before being diagnosed with cancer in April of 2002. And we're going to talk about her fascinating and moving near-death experience in early 2006 which tremendously changed her perspective on life and her work is now ingrained with the depths and insights she gained while in the other realm. Anita's story has been captivating audiences ever since. Anita, welcome to Conversations. Thank you so much. Um, I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you with us. And let's just start out talking a little bit about your early days, uh, early life in Hong Kong and in Singapore. Uh, Give us a little background. So, um, well, when I was growing up, I actually grew up in, in Hong Kong. I mean, my memories are, of growing up are more in Hong Kong, although my grandparents lived in Singapore, which is where I was born. So we would go and visit them every summer. Um, and, and life was very interesting. It was a predominantly a Chinese city, Hong Kong. And um, my parents are, uh, are Indian, ethnically Indian. And when I went to school there, I learned to speak Cantonese and English. And at home, my parents would speak to me in their own dialect, which was Sindhi. It's an Indian dialect. Mm -hmm. So I was speaking three languages simultaneously. Um, it was Hong Kong was actually quite a magical city at that time. Um, I had a Chinese nanny who would help take care of me and she would take me to the markets and she would walk me to school and things like that so um it was a really interesting upbringing we used to ride on the trams and so and and i would celebrate all the chinese festivals mid-autumn festival and and chinese new year and so on um but when I grew up, um, actually, as I got older, my parents put me into a British school. And so most of my friends at school, my peers were all British kids. And that's when I really started to notice the cultural differences between um, Western kids of my age and myself being Indian, because my parents were grooming me for an arranged marriage. So as I got older and in school, my peers, the other kids in my school were thinking about going to university and they were talking about their careers but my parents were not interested in me getting a higher education because in in my culture women are not supposed to be overeducated um, because it reduces your chances of getting married apparently i mean and certainly was at this at that time so this was in the 80s um 
And so I was quite rebellious because I, you know, I had all these friends who, peers who were British, and I was into rock music at that time, Cindy Lauper and uh, Madonna, and I was into all of them, and I was emulating them. But my parents, um, you know, and, but I, I, my culture or the Indian culture has a tremendous amount of uh, gender disparity. So I was constantly under pressure to conform and to, um, and, and to learn to be more of a housewife, to learn to cook. And unfortunately, at that time in this culture, a, woman, a woman's um, value was measured by how good she was at housework. I mean, that's what measured her worth. And I was terrible at housework. I hated housework. <laughs> so, so I was constantly being judged and criticized and being told that who's going to marry me because, um, because I don't like doing housework and all I want to do is watch music videos and stuff like that. So, so my parents, <clears throat> so I kind of struggled with my parents, but eventually I gave in to an arranged marriage, but three days before the wedding, I ran away, which caused um, huge furor in my community and everybody in our Indian community. They told my parents that nobody will marry me after what I'd done. Mm. So I was ostracized from the community for a long time mm. and seen as somebody who was very, um, who was very spoilt and, um, yeah, just somebody who was, uh, you know, and it was interesting because um, I didn't feel I was any different from my peers, my Western peers. And yet in this Indian community or Indian culture, I was seen as somebody who was, who was extremely spoiled. And, and, and as they would say that I had a mind of my own, which apparently in this culture was a bad thing because, because I was being groomed at, serving the men in my life. That's how women were brought up. You serve the men in your family as in your father. You followed what your father said and the father's seen as the head of the house. And then when you get married, it's your husband. Um, so anyway, um, I, I, yeah, so that's, that's basically what it was like yeah. growing up as me. <laughs> I was interested to hear about your early spiritual days uh you went to a catholic church i think and then you had a catholic school a yes catholic uh, that's what i meant school yes. and and you um had a nanny who also it, it sounded like gave you some spiritual education Can you talk about that uh before we get into your uh, bigger experience here yes so um i i started my early schooling was in a catholic school where we had to sing hymns every morning and uh, and had to say prayers and there was a um, a chapel in the school which we had to go and visit regularly and it was the school was run by nuns and I was and and everybody in my school was Christian they were all I guess they'd all been baptized and I hadn't so I could tell you can just feel it that the nuns were judging me because I was not Catholic and um and but whereas at home my parents had a shrine at home of 
of all the Hindu deities. And they would light incense every morning and they would put their hands together in prayer and they would teach me how to do this. And every Monday we would go and visit the Hindu temple, you know, where we would see other fellow Indian people and they would be worshiping and, and singing and, and lighting incense and all that. That was every Monday evening. And the nanny, my, the nanny who took care of me, um, she was, a, she was a Buddhist. And so she had, um, like a little shrine in her room. She had a room in our home and she had this little shrine that was red where she burned Chinese incense sticks and there was, and she would lay out fruit in front of it. And, and there was pictures of her deceased ancestors. So I was exposed to these different ways of thinking because in the um, actually, sorry, I said she was a Buddhist, but she wasn't. She was a Taoist. Mm -hmm. She worshipped her um, her deceased ancestors, and so in Hong Kong is um, is a combination of Taoist and Buddhist um, beliefs. Most of the Chinese people are either Taoist or Buddhist, but both of which are very compatible. Um, my parents were Hindus, and the school I went to was a Catholic school, so I was exposed to all these different beliefs all at once. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, um, all of it was acceptable in that just like I was exposed to different races of people, different ethnicities, I mean, the Chinese people, Western people, and Indian people, I felt that just like people have a different ethnicity, they also have a different religion accordingly. So it would confuse me if when at school, um, people would make me feel as if the, their way was the only way and no other way was right. And so I would say, but how can that be so? Um, there's so many people here who are Buddhists or Taoists and my parents are Hindu. How can they all be wrong? And so they would say, no, the only way is through, um, is, is through Jesus. And, and if you don't go this way, you won't go to heaven. And so um, I would get all these different mixed messages, which caused a lot of confusion in that sense and a little bit of fear as well. Mm, yeah. So then you got, yeah, you, you worked and went into the corporate world, but then you got cancer and um, talk about your cancer and your dying experience. That's such a pivotal point in your story. Um, so I was dealing with my diagnosis for four years and over the period of four years, um, my condition started to deteriorate because I was watching two other people uh, who were very close to me who also had a cancer diagnosis. And I know that by watching them, there was also something going on internally within me because on the one hand, I felt that I needed to be there for them, um, particularly my best friend um, who was who had a terminal diagnosis and I kept feeling I needed to be there for her. And if I ever went and did anything fun for myself, I actually felt guilty because she was sick. Um, she was really having a hard time with the treatments and was, her condition was deteriorating and she wanted me to be with her and spend time with her. So I would feel guilty doing anything else that made me feel good. And so I found myself, constantly spending time with her. But as I would watch her and keep hearing over and over again about all the, you know, like all the illnesses. And, and, and I think many people will relate to this is that when somebody keeps 
talking about symptoms um, or when people around you, when you're in, surrounded by people who are constantly talking about illnesses and symptoms, you start to imagine yourself feeling all these symptoms. You kind of imagine them in yourself. You're like, oh my gosh, am I feeling this? Oh yeah, I feel that. So that's what started to happen to me. I started to feel a lot of different symptoms in my body and I started to feel fear that I was also in some way not totally healthy. Anyway, but this went on for months and months. I would actually say it went on for about two years that I was there for people who had like um, severe illnesses. And um, I, so then one day um, I really wasn't feeling, I, I started to get concerned about a lump in my own body. And then I went to have it checked out and, um, and it was confirmed as stage two mm. lymphoma. And, uh, and so I started to become really fearful, but also, um, interestingly, up until that point, I had felt guilty taking care of myself. I had felt that I needed to be there for people and I felt, uh, really guilty. But, uh, as soon as I got my own diagnosis, Interestingly, there was a part of me that felt, ah, now I have a reason or an excuse to take care of myself. Yeah, that's yeah. such a, a common experience. Did you go back and see an incident earlier where you kind of adapted that guilt to yourself that somebody said something or you had some kind of trauma or dissociation that you suddenly felt that you needed to take care of everybody? I think it was part of my upbringing, my conditioning as an Indian woman that, you know, and if you're kind of brought up to serve other people mm. and be subservient. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it was to do with that. Yeah. And I always felt guilty when I would be putting myself first or taking care of myself. Mm. And, and so I never really, really even asked myself, what, what do I want? What makes me happy? What do I need? Do I need to rest or recharge my batteries? If somebody needed me, I was there. I wouldn't even ask if I was, uh, am I tired? In fact, not even if someone needed me. If someone wanted me, I was there. Even if I had needs that were greater than theirs, I would put my needs aside. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Anita, I didn't tell you this, but I also had a death experience and uh, bled to death. And um, oh, wow. And I remember being in that, my roommate found me on the floor. I'd had wisdom teeth taken out and, and they didn't take and I passed out and then they got me to the hospital. And I remember being on the gurney and it was like I was a convex mirror watching the whole scene. And it reminds me of your talking about how, you know, people were running around and saying, you know, there's no vital signs and, you know, all the things. And, and I'm just like really peaceful watching all this and felt like I was trying to communicate. But uh, like you talked about, yes. uh, it was kind of a nice feeling, but nobody could hear you or get it. <laughs> and I'd love for you to share that because it's a common experience I have with you. Yeah, that's incredible that you had it too. So, yeah, so after dealing with the lymphoma for um, four years, finally, uh, I was at final end stages. It continued to spread throughout my body. And then at the final stages, I was at 
um, stage 4B and I went into a coma and the doctors said, they told my family that my organs had now shut down and that I was dying and that I wasn't going to come back. So I was in this coma, but unbeknownst to everyone around me, I was actually feeling great. I was feeling better than I'd felt for years because all the pain was gone mm. and the fear was gone. The fear of the disease, the fear of dying, all of that was gone. And I was just watching my body and my family. And although they were distraught and I didn't want them to be, I wanted them to know I was fine. I knew they were distraught because of me. And yet I felt like I was free. I was finally free of that body that had caused me so much pain and discomfort. So it was quite an incredible feeling, mm -hmm. quite incredible. I felt powerful and liberated and just really, really good. Like I was, I guess I call it um, a state of unconditional love because mm -hmm. that's what I felt. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was um, enveloped in a feeling of unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Talk about the feeling you had of the interconnection, the shared consciousness. I, I really uh, could relate to that part also. Can you share about that? Yes, it felt like we all share the same consciousness. Mm -hmm. It felt like um, that I could feel what everyone else was feeling. Like I could feel what the doctors were feeling and the nurses. I could feel their panic. I could sense it. I knew what they were feeling. It was like um, there's no separation between me and all the other people around. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that when we're in our physical bodies, we think we are separate beings. But actually, our consciousness is is shared, if you will. It's like when we are out of our physical bodies in death we go we kind of merge but yet not so completely merge that we lose like i didn't lose my identity completely but yet merged enough to be a facet of the whole and sometimes i use the example of a um of a a, a prism like prism mm -hmm. um like if you imagine a multifaceted prism or like you know like one of those mirror balls in a in a disco yeah, right. it has all these different facets and they're all beautiful lit up and shining but each so imagine if each of those facets is each one of us and as we are reflecting our light and we see our light reflected on the nearest surface we see them as all these little distinct individual little specks of light being reflected from each one of the mirrors on the mirror balls. And so each of these specks of lights think that they are an individual human being. But when we die, we realize, oh, I am a facet of this big mirror ball and we are all part of the same mirror ball. So basically we're all part of the same one, the same whole. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Did you have a sense of choice? I know when I was on the gurney kind of watching myself and then I started to get really black and then I saw this light and this kind of arm reached down like a, like a light arm and I knew at that moment I had a choice and that's exactly when I decided not to leave and to come back and I came 
back into consciousness uh, on the on the gurney. Did you have that kind of experience also? So. Yes. So in my case, it was my my dad who had died ten years prior to me having this experience, mm -hmm. and I um, felt the presence of my dad. Mm. So my dad was there. So my dad was the person who I had feared the most in my life, who was the one um, much more so than my mom, who was strict and wanted me to have the arranged marriage and so on. But here he was on the other side, and he was nothing but unconditional love. There was no, um, you know, it was like all the, uh, the judgment, everything had just dissolved. And so um, he was just nothing but unconditional love. And he wanted me to know that it wasn't my time and that I needed to go back and that I still had gifts that were waiting for me. Yeah. And, and it was my dad that said that, um, you know, and, and I felt so incredible and powerful. And I said, I don't want to go back because, um, because my body is sick and dying. What's the point of going to a sick and dying body? And he said, actually, now that you know the truth of who you are, your body will heal very, very quickly. Mm. And he said, go back and live your life fearlessly. So my dad, who had instilled fear in me my whole life, also set me free from that fear in death. Wow. wow. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't have a particular person, although I'd lost my mother very early, so it could have been related to that. But I did have a real sense of choice and that the thing to do was to go back because I had things to do. And talk about what your life has been like since this healing, because it was not just back from death, but there was a a larger kind of healing and and talk about that and some of the challenges that you've you know had to deal with since you came back so when i came back when i started to come out of the coma sure enough my body started to heal very rapidly from stage 4 lymphoma the tumors just started to shrink very rapidly and within 5 weeks the doctors could find no trace of cancer in my body hmm. and they were shocked. I mean, they couldn't explain it. They were trying to figure out why. They were insisting that it's going to come back, but I was sure it wasn't. And I kept saying, no, it's not going to come back. I'm fine. And they were insisting that they were overlooking something. And so it was a bit of a battle with them. But I let them do all the tests they wanted to. They were painful. I didn't want to do them, but I let them do them. Today, I'm glad I let them do them because, um, because I've had to show those test results over and over again to people who've asked because I've shared my story. And so people have been able to see that, yes, it really did happen. And I've been on TV, on CNN and on Dr. Oz and all these people, they've all seen my test results to prove that it really did happen. Mm. Um, so I'm glad they did all those tests. But the thing is, um, the question that people keep asking me is, so how did you heal? And so I just keep telling people <clears throat> is that we have to shift from living from that state of fear and instead to live from a state of, I call it a state of love, but it really is a state of, of being authentic and being who you are and being unafraid of being who you are instead of trying to be someone else. Um, and, 
And so, and, and realizing that you are a soul that has chosen to live, that has chosen to come here and expressing itself. Your soul chose to came, come here and express itself through your physical body. So you have to allow that soul to express itself. Um, and what I had done my whole life is that I had made myself small and I had suppressed who I am. And I had been subservient and had made myself invisible. And so um, I started to talk about it and share it online because I felt that it's actually really, really simple that you just have to ask yourself, what makes you happy? What brings you joy? Because when you're in a state of joy, your energy is elevated. That's when your soul, that's when you're being authentic. Um, the, the way to know that you are being yourself is when you are feeling joy. Um, and so it's as simple as that. But when I would share that with people, people would kind of say, oh, that's too simple and uh, that doesn't cure illness and you're delusional and stuff like that. So what I did was um, I realized I didn't want to be part of that old um, paradigm that I used to be. So my husband and I, Danny and I, we kind of moved away from our community and moved away from sharing the story and the medical uh, community because they were on the one hand really curious, but on the other hand, I felt like they were trying to poke holes into everything I was saying. Mm -hmm. And when people poke holes into what you're saying, it almost feels like they're trying to take the experience away from you. So I decided that I don't want anyone to take it away from me because I know what happened to me. I decided to go and just live my life the way I know it needs to be lived now, mm -hmm. not the way society has dictated or culture has dictated or anyone else has dictated. I'm going to live it the way I know how to live after dying and, and coming back. <clears throat> and so I started doing that. And as I started to just... Um, honor who I am and get in touch with my own soul and my own soul's purpose and just being who I am, things started to unfold in a way that I never would have imagined, never would have imagined. I, I shared my story. I shared my story online and I didn't even put my full name to it because I thought I'm just going to set my story free and let whoever um, it reaches reach them. And I don't need to be out there answering people's questions or fending off skeptics or debunkers or anything. I'm just going to set it free and whoever's meant to read it will read it. Well, the story went viral mm. and then it was read by Wayne Dyer, right. Dr. Wayne Dyer. Um, and he, uh, and so he got his publishers to track me down and, and then they said they would like me to write a book about my story, which they would publish. And they said, Wayne Dyer would like to promote it. As it turned out, um, Wayne Dyer just loved my story so much. Uh, he had me go on tour with him for, uh, for this happened in 2011 and he passed away in 2015. So for those four years, I was touring with him as he was, telling everybody about my story and bringing me up on stage and sharing it. And so it was just quite an amazing experience. And, and then old friends of mine from my old community who were, um, who were some of whom were skeptical about what I had told them that happened on the other side, you know, they would say at that time, they would say, 
you're very blessed that you've healed, you've had a spontaneous healing, but what you're saying about being yourself and finding a joy and being happy, that's not realistic. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite delusional and it's quite selfish and, you know, the same old stuff yeah. they were saying. And so I realized that if I stuck with that community, I was realizing at that time that if I stayed in that circle, I would have continued to be that person who got the cancer in the first place. That's why we moved to a new neighborhood and I allowed myself to be who I am and all this had happened. So those old people from the old community started to come back into my life and they started to say, oh my God, I'm, we're so proud of you. It's so amazing what you've done with your life. We want what you have. And, and they were saying things like, you're out there teaching everyone and showing people what to do. Why aren't you here back in your old hometown showing us and teaching us? And, I, and so tell us, how do you do it? How can we climb out of our ruts? And we're fed up of our lives. And I would say, well, I guess you just got to be delusional. <laughs> That's lovely. That's lovely. Let me tell our, our, our audience that uh, if you just tuned in, I'm talking to Anita Morjani about uh, her book, Dying to Be Me, and about her experience of dying and coming back. And uh, just a delight to have you on, Anita. And one of the things I've heard you say about the five biggest lessons you've learned from the experience you want to share your five biggest lessons with us? Oh, wow. Okay. I've got to remember that because I know <laughs> that that was from my TED Talk. Oh, is that what it was? Well, you don't have yes. to. I mean, just a couple yes. of them anyway. Yes. Yeah, so, so one of the biggest lessons is that it's really important to love yourself. 
and uh, that is super important. Love yourself like your life depends on it. I know some people feel icky at the thought of self-love, but um, you can change the word love to anything you want. You can change it to self-worth, um, self-esteem, any, anything like that. And, and the reason why it's important is because when we love ourselves, we allow our, um, our soul to express itself for who it is. We allow ourselves to be authentic. Um, we allow ourselves to be who we are. And contrary to popular belief, Selfish people are not people who love themselves too much. Selfish people are people who don't love themselves mm -hmm. enough. When The more someone loves themselves, the more love they have to share with others. The more fulfilled you are, the more you want to do service for others. Um, so I feel that self-love is extremely important. Mm -hmm. um, another, uh, an, another lesson that I learned is that life is a gift that it may not feel like it when you're going through something and don't force yourself to find the gift while you're going through it. But, um, but after a crisis is over, after there's calm, you will actually come away feeling that, wow, those were very precious lessons because they will deepen your soul in a way that makes you more compassionate and makes you more divine. Uh, it deepens your your reason for being here and your lessons in this world. And But if somebody tries to tell you that life is a gift while you're going through a crisis, that comes across as insensitive. So I often tell people, don't try to force people to see the gift when they're not ready to. They will come upon it themselves. When they're going through pain, allow them to allow them the space to feel that pain and then to heal that pain. Mm -hmm. um, but life is a gift. At the end of the journey, when you come out of it and when you see the light and the love again, you, you, um, you know, I, I don't know a single person who hasn't recovered from cancer that doesn't feel that the cancer brought them some level of gifts and yeah. compassion and understanding. Mm -hmm. So those are two of the, the, the lessons. And another one is um, to live your life from love and not fear. Most of us make our choices from a place of fear. So it's a bit like the carrot and the stick. Like, are you, are you somebody that runs towards the carrot or are you someone that runs away from the stick? Most of us have been conditioned to run away from the stick, which means that we're being conditioned by avoiding fear as opposed to consciously choosing love. We don't consciously go out and choose the things that make us happy and bring us joy. We actually spend our lives running away from fear. And that's a conditioning that we've received from a very young age, probably from the time we start going to school, where we start avoiding failure. We avoid um, being disappointed. We avoid... Um, um, disappointing other people and we want to fit in and so we start people pleasing and we start being something we're not all of it is to avoid failure yeah let's yeah. pause on this one a second before we go to other ones because there's so much fear right now that yes. people have it's a huge opportunity to actually open to and lean into and and love that fear and it's in the field you can't help but look at the news or pick up a newspaper or anything. Personally, I think 
in spite of the fact that people are dying and people are getting sick, this may be the greatest opportunity and gift that's ever happened, this coronavirus, because for the first time ever in the history of humanity, we're all connected. Yes. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, how much power you have, you, you know, it, it levels the playing field. But rather than being connected with that fear to kind of move through it to the other side of, like you're saying, move into the love side of it, that's hard for people to get because they're worried about their income, they're worried about their family, they're worried about getting sick. And so there's a great deal of fear. And I'm just wondering your thought of being with and opening to and allowing that fear, because I, I know myself when I try to push it away, it gets stronger. So what's your thought about dealing with fear in the time of coronavirus? So my suggestion is don't fight the fear. Don't push the fear away but shift your focus to what you'd like to see instead. So what I tend to do is um, whenever I feel fear, I first have to embrace it, acknowledge it, love it, because the idea is to love every aspect of yourself. Um, if you fear the fear, that means you're rejecting a part of your own emotions, a part of your own feelings, and it means you're suppressing a part of yourself. So you have to actually embrace the fact that, yes, I am feeling a little bit anxious or fearful. And then ask yourself, okay, how can I alleviate it or what would I like to see instead? And then we shift our focus. So for example, I'm spending a lot of time at home. Um, I'm spending a lot of time cooking and, and taking care of myself. I'm exercising. I'm doing things, a lot of things that I normally don't have time to do. And I'm finding joy in that. And I'm actually feeling really good. I'm feeling healthier than I normally do, interestingly. I'm resting. I'm sleeping a lot. And I'm liking that. And I'm not watching the news all the time. I'm being responsible because I know what they're saying on the news is that we should, um, stay, we should stay at home because either we can get infected or infect other people. So I am, um, I am consciously... Uh, keeping my distance from people other than my own family members, other than my husband. Um, and so we're, we're being responsible, but at the same time, we're making sure that we are still laughing and listening to music and cooking and watching fun shows and keeping ourselves upbeat because there's no point in panicking. And the thing is, um, and, and the thing is, there are people I know who are glued to the news and who are freaking out, who are absolutely freaking out and getting angry. And what I say is that if you're doing that, if you're actually feeding the fear, it's not doing your immune system any good. There's, so on the one hand, I'm not saying to suppress the fear, but on the other hand, don't feed it either shift your focus. Just don't fear the fear, but consciously shift the focus and say, okay, I'm going to do things to strengthen my immune system. I'm going to do things to make me feel stronger and good um, and good about myself and raise my own energy. And, uh, and, and so that even if, if somebody comes by me who has it, I won't catch it because my immune system will be stronger. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's also a very big sign of the 
impact of your death that you're actually cleaning and cooking and doing housework after your youth. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm enjoying it. That's the fun. <laughs> and enjoying it, right. <laughs> and accepting what is. I mean, that's really, we're, we spend so much time in our remembered past and our feared future that we don't take the time to really cultivate the practice of loving ourselves and others. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about impasse because it sounds to me like you have always been an impasse, the feeling of guilt in the face of other people's suffering. And so that's, that's a thing that I've often talked to different people on this show about as an empath, how do you separate yours from theirs, from ours, from mine, and be able to navigate sometime when the feelings are so intense like they are today? So um, I, I love that you asked that because talking about empaths is one of my favorite subjects. And I've just written a book about it. So oh. um, yeah, so I've just submitted it. I mean, it's just been accepted by my publishers. And the title of the book is Sensitive is the New Strong. And the subtitle is The Power of Empaths in an Increasingly Harsh World. And um, the so... I feel that empaths, you know, they basically, we absorb the, um, the energy around us. So for example, even right now, um, I can sense the energy of the world. I'm not afraid of death, but sensing the energies that's going on is not comfortable. So for me, I'm not, so, so this is what's really interesting. I'm not actually truth be told, I'm not actually afraid of the virus itself, but I'm just feeling uncomfortable with the energy field that we are in right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of empaths would probably feel the same way. Um, so, because death is actually a very pleasant experience. Mm -hmm. um, but this particular energy that we have going on is... Uh, everybody's feeling so fearful and the and the news although they have a responsibility to report the news they also have a responsibility not to cause a panic whereas they're not very good at the latter right well that's what sells since you know sensationalism is what sells too yes it does sell and so yeah so so as an empath what I choose to do is I choose to limit my exposure to things from the world that don't agree with me. Mm -hmm. so, so the shift I've made from before, previously I did not know I was an empath. Um, and I realized that all the messages that, so, so let me see, let me try and backtrack a little bit. So you know all the messages, spiritual messages that we receive um, and I was receiving them as I was growing up, spiritual messages of don't be, don't be selfish. Um, it's selfish to put yourself first and be of service to others. Always put other people first. The best, um, the, the best way you can serve God is to serve others. And, 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 um, and all and and I'm trying to think of some other typical conventional spiritual messages. Don't be egotistical. The ego is bad. Suppress your ego and all of this. So I used to take all those messages to heart. Mm. I was somebody who 
I felt was following, I felt I was following a spiritual path. It was only after the near-death experience did I realize that, um, that following that path led to my own detriment. It made me suppress myself and made me so selfless and made me so small and suppress my ego to the point that I became invisible. Mm -hmm. Everybody yeah. else mattered more than I did in my mind. And I had to serve everybody except me to the point of being invisible. So after I came back um, and I thought, this is going to be challenging. It's going to be challenging loving myself and trying to show people that I'm not being selfish, that this is something we need to do. And I, until I discovered that I was an empath, I had never heard of that word before, before the NDE. And when I discovered that there are people who are empaths who feel things differently, this is what I started to discover in my research, is that empaths serve other people by, it's their nature to serve other people because we feel what other people are feeling. And because you feel what other people are feeling, you need other people to feel good in order for you to feel good. And so you are going to do good anyway. You are going to be of service anyway. So the spiritual message that an empath needs is not the same message that the rest of the world needs. The spiritual message that an empath needs is that you need to empower yourself. You need to take care of yourself so that you can do what is in your nature to do, which is to be of service. For an empath, it's a given that they're going to be of service, but it's not a given that they're going to take care of themselves. Yeah. And yeah. so when I discovered that, I realized, wow, those spiritual messages are for the world at large, but they don't work for empaths. Empaths have made themselves so small that the world is kind of imbalanced now. Hence the title of my book, Sensitive is the New Strong. Mm. So empaths have to realize that they have to become empowered and see themselves as powerful and important. And to be able to see that those conventional spiritual messages don't apply to you. Those messages were created and written by empaths for those, for, for what they saw happening out there in the greater world. But as an empath, you need to take care of yourself. You need to love yourself mm -hmm. because you, you by nature are someone who is going to help other people. Yeah, that's beautiful. Really brilliant. You know, another really nutty belief. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. People think because there's suffering in the world that they have to be miserable because if they were joyful, somehow it would deny all the suffering in the world, which is, of course, insane. Yeah. So many people have that. What is that? That, I find that really interesting as well. That's also a certain, uh, it's a type of social conditioning. And, uh, and, and, it's, it's so interesting because sometimes when I post 
really joyful pictures um, on the on on the internet on my social media, most people will like it and will say, uh, "Oh, this is so great! I'd love to see you happy." Blah, blah blah. But you will have a couple of people who are really really angry and who will accuse me of being insensitive just because I'm feeling joyful, which is super interesting because it's almost like me being miserable is going to help people who are miserable. And it is some kind of social conditioning. And so those people who get angry or who feel they have to be miserable, it is something within themselves. And it sort of comes, it's also similar with um, many people have the same belief about abundance and money. They believe that them getting money somehow deprives those who don't have from, uh, you know, in other words, they feel guilty if they make money when there are people who don't have money. Um, Whereas when you have money or when you have joy, when you have, when you're filled with light, you're more likely to be able to light up the people around you. So that's the point they're missing where, whereas they feel that it's insensitive to be happy when other people are miserable. In actuality, when you are happy, you can uplift those around you. So the example I give is that if you imagine that you came here choosing to be a light for other people, you came here choosing to light up the world, how can you light up the world when you allow yourself to actually um, become part of the darkness. So when somebody is a bright light, what happens is they attract a lot of people who are feeling darkness and depressed and down. You attract that because like like moths to a flame. Mm -hmm. So um, people who are struggling, who are suffering, they're attracted to the person who's joyful and happy. They're attracted to the light. The... And then among those people, there will be some who will be angry and resentful that that person is such a bright light and is so joyful. There will be one or two who will be resentful. And if that person who is the bright light falls into the trap of believing those one or two and thinking, yes, it is insensitive for me to be such a bright light, they will then become, they will then dim their light so as not to be insensitive. And in, and in the end, they will in fact become part of the problem. They will be one of, the, one of the depressed or one of the ones who's suffering or struggling. What we have to do is we have to stay strong in our conviction that I am here to be a light. And those people that are, feeling, that are making me feel guilty, they are the ones who need to see this light the most. I cannot stop shining because of them. I have to keep shining and showing them how to do it without trying to judge them, without judging them, just by accepting them for who they are. But I need to keep shining. That's how we need to feel. Yeah. And I don't really feel that anybody can make me feel guilty. I feel that uh, people can touch a place in me that feels shame and guilt. And that that rather than deal with it and uh, work with my own inner spiritual healing, I then point it out there and say, "You're making me feel guilty." But I don't believe that anybody can feel make me feel guilty. You're right. That's a very good point, mm-hmm. and you're right. Um, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, you do is you invite people to share their truth with the world. 
but that's on a soul level. And most people live in a sea of opinions, assumptions, beliefs that they're projecting all of, over. And their true self is really pretty covered and hidden in the stories from the past and the fears from the future. How do you suggest that people get into the infinite flow of who they are on a soul level? That's a good question. So I usually ask people to, um, uh, to strip away at who they are not. Um, let's see, let me articulate this a little bit better. Um, I encourage people to spend time alone and to do nothing. So here's one of my philosophies, if you will. Um, when people go to teachers um, or when they read books, self-help books, how-to books, how to do this, or how to, let's say, how to get authentic, how to do, you know, anything at all, um, it's all about doing and instructions and following instructions. And so people are constantly, even when they're trying to find who they are, they're looking for instructions to follow. How do I do this? How do I find who I am? What do I follow? What we don't realize is every time we do that, we're actually adding more layers and moving away from who we are every time we're trying to do something or doing something. An analogy I use to help me to clarify or to help me to explain this better is if you remember the sculpture, the artist and sculpture Michelangelo, he used to carve these beautiful statues of angels out of blocks of marble or blocks of stone. And when somebody asked him, how do you carve these beautiful angels from these blocks of stone you, without any plans or drawings or anything? And he would just, Michelangelo would just sit there and just chip away. And, and this angel, you know, he would have this angel, beautiful angel carved out. And his answer was that he said, the angel is already there. I just chip away until I set the angel free. So basically what he's doing is he's chipping away at what is not the angel and sets it free. This is how I ask people to look at their lives. When you want to discover who you are, when you want to discover your own authenticity, it's not about going out and learning more, being more, doing more, how do I do this? It's about letting go of what is not you. It's about undoing. It's actually about releasing, releasing everything that doesn't feel like it's you. Mm -hmm. We make the mistake of defaulting to, what do I do? Let's default to, okay, what can I stop doing? What can I let go of? Mm -hmm. ah, that's brilliant. I love that. We're getting close to the end of our time. It goes so fast. But, yeah. um, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about and teaching for years is about the myth of separation that, you know, pretty much all of our, our suffering uh, is based in that one, one illusion of separation. Talk about what you learned from your experience about the myth of separation and the dying and coming back uh, process. Um, so we all believe that we are that we are separate beings, but in actuality, energetically, we are all connected. And we don't realize that each and every one of us are connected to all the rest of us, and that each one of us affects the whole. 
And so even if you are somebody who is living alone remotely um, and you and you decide to spend your time just uplifting your own energy and meditation or in any kind of um, just deep um, conscious work, internal conscious work, you can actually help to alleviate or to help lift the consciousness of the whole planet. Um, so while there are people who believe that we are purely five sensory beings. So this is, this is one of the things I believe is that we have been conditioned to believe that we are five sensory beings, but in actual, actuality, we are six or more sensory beings. We believe, we've been conditioned to believe only in what we can um, see, hear, touch, smell, uh, taste, you know, with our, uh, with our five senses but there's a lot more that exists beyond our five senses. Our consciousness is far bigger and greater and more powerful than our physical body. Thinking that all we are is this pure, this physical body with our five senses, that is the myth. That is the illusion. That is really the illusion. Mm -hmm. um, the physical body is just, and our five senses is just like, is, is the tip of the iceberg. And like an iceberg, 90% of it is below the water, which you can't see. It's the same with us. 90% of us is beyond our five sensory perception. Mm. And we haven't been taught to tap into it. So we have, this is something we have to really experiment and do our, consciously ourselves. Because unfortunately, our school systems, um, not only do they not teach us how to tap into it, they actually teach us that it is delusional and that it's our imagination and that it's unreal when we do tap into it. Yeah, yeah, so true. Anita Morjani, it is just a delight to have you on the show. When's your next book coming out? It's coming out towards the end of this year. Uh -huh. I'm excited about it. <laughs> oh, lovely. Well, we look forward to hearing that and just thank you so much for your work and for your sharing and uh, your teaching. It's just uh, lovely to have you with us on Conversations. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's been an honor and a pleasure. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.